Hi, everyone, and welcome to Workplace 2.0, Tango's podcast about all things corporate real estate. Recently, we held our annual Workplace 2.0 Summit, which was chock full of great roundtable discussions and presentations by industry leaders about the return to the office and hybrid work moving forward. We've packaged some of the best sessions as podcasts for those who are more on the go. And if you're interested in listening or watching additional sessions, check out this episode's show notes for details. Enjoy. Let's jump into the roundtable, lease in a post-pandemic environment. We have a great set of guests from several leading organizations, including Cushman and Wakefield, Jackson Cross Partners, and RSM. And our very own Rick Zielinski will moderate the discussion. So, Rick, I will turn the reins over to you. Thanks so much, Bart. And uh, with that, um, I would ask for our attendees to, or our participants to please uh, go ahead and do some introductions. Uh, Brett, if you would. Perfect. Glad to be here. Thanks, Rick and Bart. Uh, my name is Brett Abrams. I'm the Global Head of Portfolio Administration uh, with Cushman and Wakefield. I've been at Cushman for about eight years and I'm located at our headquarters city of Chicago. Thank you. Lou? Thanks, Rick. And again, thanks for having us on the uh, panel. I'm Lou Battelise. I am a partner here at Jackson Cross Partners uh, based outside of Philadelphia. And uh, we have been doing advisory work and corporate strategy work uh, for the last 20 years and happy to be here today. Thank you, Lou and Kristen. Yeah, so I'm Kristen McLaughlin. I'm a partner with RSM and our technical accounting consulting group. So I'm located in Detroit and for the past, I'd say three, four years, I've been working with clients to implement ASA 42 and deal with their complex lease accounting questions. So look forward to talking to you guys today. Sounds great. And uh, to complete the introductions, I'm Rick Zielinski. I'm with uh, Tango and in our product strategy group. Um, I've been in the lease administration and accounting technology for about the last 26 years and look forward to uh, moderating this session today. So let's go ahead and dig in. And I think for the purpose of today's discussions, we have some um, broad trends that we're going to talk about and have some specific topics within those and uh, see where the discussion goes and certainly look forward to participant uh, feedback as well. So kind of leading up to this roundtable, I've probably spoken with dozens and uh, across uh, the four of us, we've probably spoken with hundreds of companies you know, as they've navigated through the pandemic and specifically what it's meant from a lease administration lease management standpoint. Um, I think what we've seen is some of these discussions have kind of shifted quite a bit over the last year um, from kind of an initial focus on what rights a tenant may have to just paying rent or not paying rent or partial payments of rent. Um, and, you know, it, it started there and it kind of grew through um, negotiations and just this kind of whole time of uncertainty but I think we feel like we've kind of turned the corner a bit. And uh, now companies are kind of grappling with a new set of uh, challenges. So it, to that degree and to kind of start, um, to start our discussion, uh, I'd like to kind of talk about some of the trends that, that some of you have kind of seen in the marketplace relative to lease administration and accounting uh, since the start of the pandemic. So uh, Lou, if I could kind of call on you first. Um, what are you sure. seeing in this particular area? 
I, I think the sessions, the earlier sessions today really highlighted a lot of folks focused on uh, workplace, right? And where people work, how they work. And uh, I think today we're gonna talk about a lot of the underlying uh, what is actually doable based on leases and, and how things are being done. Uh, the pandemic came on the heels of a, a little bit of fatigue for the major uh, public companies getting ready for the lease accounting transition. And, and, and one of the big trends that we've talked about with clients and others is that the there was an aspirational goal of a single system of truth, a cross-functional team to put everything together and everybody working out of the same set of, of data and information. And, and what, the, what the pandemic seemed to disrupt was that process. Uh, when everyone was sent home, uh, when people had to adjust their businesses or their headcounts, uh, it was like everyone back, went back to their corners. And, and what was originally uh, dreamed of as, a, as kind of a coherent strategy on lease management, lease accounting, uh, turned back into the silos of people using multiple solutions. And, uh, and so what we've seen recently, since the beginning of this year, actually, uh, is, is the people dusting off the playbook and the plan to start to go back because uh, after a year of doing uh, uh, the lease accounting and after a year of the disruption in the workforce, people are starting to say, uh, how do we get this fixed? Uh, the labor every quarter to keep lease accounting current and all of the changes that are happening within our lease portfolio need to be managed better. And I think that people are beginning to look at alternative solutions to, to handle this. Sounds good. Uh, Kristen, any, any thoughts in this regard um, from an accounting perspective? No, I think Lou is spot on. And from an accounting perspective early on, people, although we see this as a compliance exercise, thought, I need to take advantage of, you know, the time and investment that I'm going to have in a lease accounting system to get that single version of truth. Um, and I think you're right. I think there was some disruption, but now I think there, there's definitely focus on getting those systems aligned. And we're now working with a lot of private companies because they're not required to, to adopt until, you know, calendar year one one twenty two. So they, they're just sitting in a great position to learn all of the lessons from the public companies um, and get those solutions kind of aligned and up and running. So I think there's a lot of benefits for the private companies in the space, and they're looking to capitalize on that. Gotcha. Okay. And, and Brett, any kind of similarities or differences from uh, well, certainly, and certainly we'll, we'll echo what Lou and Kristen said, but my overarching theme is it's probably never been a more complicated time to be a head of real estate at any private or public company. It was hard enough with ASC 842 coming up for private companies, you know, a deadline that had been delayed a number of times because of how complex it was. You add in COVID, you add in, you know, a bunch of turnover and leases, and now everyone is focused on return to work as well. And it feels like it's all being crammed into these last six months or or the next 12 months of the year. And it's it's just a really, really tough time to have that role with all the complexity and all the different areas that you're managing. So uh, what, we've, what we've seen is just the need for good partnership, the need for flexibility, but there's a lot of pieces of this puzzle that have to come together to be successful. I'm sure some of our uh, participants are kind of shaking their head uh, dealing with those challenges. Brad, perhaps, you know, given that uh, your business has a, a 
is, you know, kind of front and center on the outsourcing, you know, what, what can you share around outsourcing in general? Any of the trends there? Are you seeing any kind of deviations from what we've seen in the past? Yeah, we've seen a huge uptick. Um, I think as clients have gone through this, and especially through the first probably three to six months of COVID, uh, a lot of clients went through and questioned, what things do we want to keep in-house? What things do we want to work with a provider on? Just as part of basic business continuity planning, uh, specifically on the lease admin and lease accounting side, whereas over the past you know, five, 10 years, a lot of clients have tried to keep it in-house. When you add in the complexity of lease accounting, when you add in the global pandemic, they've turned to us or, or our competitors to say, this is just not a service we want to continue managing. We think someone with lease accounting expertise, with system expertise, with technical expertise, and especially with global expertise might do a better job at this than trying to keep this as a core competency. So we've probably never been busier. We've seen more uptick in RFPs and, and activity, especially over the last six to 12 months than we've ever had on the lease admin side. Gotcha. And I, I guess, Kristen, you know, given that uh, your focus is more on the accounting, are, are we seeing kind of similar trends on, on the accounting elements of this from an outsourced provider perspective as well? Definitely. I think as people have gone through the implementation and a lot of the larger companies have, you know, elected to use a partner to help them get there, they've taken a step back and said, well, well, typically I would do all of this myself. You know, I don't really want to. They understand it's more complex than they thought. There's a lot more data to manage. And, you know, it's a hard sell from their employees to get the, you know, employees trained in that role. And you do need to have a certain volume of activity to make it worthwhile. So we're definitely starting to see an uptick in the in the outsourcing from an accounting perspective as well for all gotcha. the reasons that Brett mentioned. Thanks for that. And, you know, I think that's, you know, kind of some of the operational needs. But if we if we kind of zoom out and we think about kind of portfolio planning and analysis and strategy, you know, this obviously got way more complicated with COVID as well. You know, Lou, anything to share here in terms of, you know, the portfolio planning process and the role of data and analytics um, in that regard? Yeah, there was, there was an initial benefit, and I think that most people are seeing it that the uh, the accounting project getting ready for 842 or IFRS 16 forced uh, a, a, a stronger view on data quality. Uh, and the core information that was built, uh, just simple things like locations and the correct dates and options and critical dates along that line uh, improved in that process. Uh, where it, it fell a little bit short was that most people did view it as a compliance project and certainly towards the end, uh, accounting was taking the lead. So there was less uh, rigor put on the supporting data, space management uh, or, or clauses like when we discussed in one of the earlier podcasts, the, the, the clauses, the legal clauses related to a pandemic, uh, force majeure, those things which were not part of the scope when people were trying to stand up and get to compliance. So I think people now understand that there is a place for this, uh, but I mentioned earlier that there is, there's a little bit of reluctance or inability to find budget or time to build the data. And I think that the space changes, the lease changes that are coming are gonna drive people more and more to use that because they do have a good data set uh, at least at a foundational level, but 
not enough metrics in detail to do the full-on portfolio planning and analytics that they do across other parts of their business. And uh, Lou, I, I could, just from my own personal experience, kind of working with our clients, I think what we found is that you know, strategy is kind of front and center and is something that organizations are appreciating the value of putting more time into it. Um, certainly the uncertainty that was created via the pandemic kind of got people to kind of rethink through this process. You know, Brett, is this something that you're seeing, you know, from a kind of global occupier services uh, type organization that, you know, the broader strategy is something also that companies are more focused on? There's no question about it. And it all starts with the data that we're capturing sort of on the onset. So the data matrix that we use for lease administration has grown tremendously over the past two or three years as IFRS is coming to play, ASC, COVID, you know, global components. We're just capturing more data. And when you capture more data, there's actually more data that you can put against it. There's more labor and analytics data. There's more portfolio comps data. And, and I think most real estate organizations are trying to get more sophisticated and, and bring in that level of rigor to every decision that they make. So there's no question that that third-party data and that portfolio analytics data is playing a key role in almost all of our clients' decision-making. Makes sense. And I, I think you, you touched on this uh, a couple moments ago from a perspective of global. I think this too is something, you know, given that uh, the Tango solution is one that's deployed in, in hundreds of countries. And as we enter into new agreements with new organizations, we find, you know, more global presence. You know, organizations are, you know, cross borders, dealing with more complex accounting, whatnot. Are you also seeing this in terms of the types of organizations that you're dealing with and their portfolio in general that, that you know, global and just internationalization is, is a broader trend as well? Yeah, we're seeing almost nothing come in that doesn't have at least some global component to it. So whereas a couple of years ago, you might have had just a couple of key stakeholders. Now you add in a lot of regionalization and globalization. Um, there's IFRS and ASC that is causing lease accounting. You know, all of a sudden, instead of two or three stakeholders, you've got 15, 20 stakeholders on any given implementation. It, it's making implementations harder. It's causing more coordination. But the truth is most of our clients have just created some sort of global presence, whether that's offshoring a component of their labor force, whether it's having their industrial locations offshore. Um, they're just there's more globalization than we've ever seen. And it's certainly making it more complex to implement all of the different things in the municipalities, states, countries, et cetera, to make the lease admin that single source of truth. Yeah, and I, I would suspect, Kristen, you're kind of seeing similar things where you have, you know, multinational global organizations that now have, you know, presence in entities in different countries. So some may have local regulatory reporting, some IFRS, some FASB, you know, are, are you kind of seeing this as well, that, it, that, that there's also some complexity being added kind of along the way? Completely. And when you think of, you know, global leases, you have to deal with all sorts of foreign languages. So, you know, a U.S. company, they can't read a lease in Mandarin. They can't read a lease in Polish. So how are they going to get comfortable with that data? Um, we have unique leasing structures that are really commonplace. Like in the UK, they have 99-year leases. We have a lot of clients 
What do we do for classification? How do we get a borrowing rate for a 99-year lease? We have clients that have leases on Scottish quarters, which before 842, I never had even heard of a Scottish quarter. But, you know, does a system, when they're looking at a system, can the system handle the accounting with Scottish quarter payments? Right. Um, Returning, you know, properties in a white box. That's very common in Europe, not common in the U.S. How does that impact the accounting? So all of these things that seem, you know, really simple when you add it all up, it makes it a lot more complicated coupled with all of the different IFRS and statutory and compliance that they have. So it's fairly daunting for these companies. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I think, you know, in general, I think on the on the topic of the trends, so it sounds like it's it's gaining complexity, it's gaining a global scale. You know, while some of the nuance of the immediate problems that companies were dealing with in April, May, June of last year are now kind of, you know, have passed us, it seems like, you know, it's really kind of taken hold and really kind of reshaped this business. So with that, let's let's go into kind of our next topic um, around negotiations. And, you know, I think we've talked about some of these trends and kind of what surfaced as a part of the pandemic. But, you know, this is not an area we can ignore um, because I think companies kind of learned um, some of them the hard way of, you know, what they're willing to pay for what, in order to kind of minimize ex, uh, exposure, to increase flexibility, or perhaps both. Um, and as, you know, those of you that are familiar with lease negotiations, you know, everything kind of comes at a cost. It may not be an economic cost, but it could be a language cost and a flexibility cost. Um, you know, I guess if we kind of break this down a little bit and let's maybe start with uh, renewals, because I think that's, you know, obviously a, a, common, um, a common item that's referenced in many leases. Uh, Brad, is this something, anything happen in terms of, you know, how leases are being negotiated in co- in the context of uh, renewals? Yeah, I would say there's two themes that we're seeing. Number one is obviously complexity. Uh, COVID threw us into a loop. I like to call it the, the lawyer red line Olympics, where we are seeing um, just more complexity in leases than we've ever seen, whether it's force majeure clauses or sanitation and maintenance or, or global pandemic clauses that are going into these leases, they're just getting more and more complex. With that complexity, there's a need to refine what we're capturing in system and what we are providing in reports to our clients. So that's number one. Number two is that uh, almost all of our occupiers are looking for increased flexibility. That's sort of table stakes at this point, even more than necessarily rent. Uh, rent decreases, which we're seeing you know, in the 15 to 25% rate. Clients are really trying to figure out how can we build in the most amount of flexibility, acknowledging there's probably not going to be another COVID, hopefully in our lifetime, but there probably will be another global event where we need to be flexible. We need to be able to change course quickly. So that's what we are seeing a lot on the occupier side. Gotcha. And then Lou, anything, any thoughts you have relative to options specifically? I think that there's there are a couple of things that, that we talked about uh, from an options standpoint, options were built in so that folks could control the space, right? And have some leverage, depending on where the market goes, they may or may not exercise. Uh, but th- as, as Brett was just talking about, 
the the turnover in what people need for space, what space looks like. It certainly will vary by space type. Offices has been the, the topic of the day about workplace, but manufacturing and distribution space is all being configured differently. Uh, and so it, it reopens almost every negotiation. And where a company might had 15 or 20% of their leases rolling that they had to deal with on an annualized basis uh, for renewals, whether direct negotiation or just exercising options. Now, almost everything's in play. And, and trying to align the terms of the lease, the leverage that you may have or may not have, the landlord situation regarding other space in the in the buildings or their portfolio, it is significantly more complex, and and most of all, it just takes longer. Uh, and, and I think setting expectations for non-real estate people in the organizations that when when the uh, C-suite says this is our plan, we're going to cut headcount by X, we're going to reduce rooftops by Y, and then you have to look at your portfolio and realize you don't have the leverage to get X and Y done, uh, it, it makes it a challenging time. And I guess expanding on that a bit, uh, Lou, you know, I think, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, companies put a lot of effort into negotiating options, renewals specifically, um, probably most, most commonly, you know, I think now it seems like that probably holds less uh, value to them or, you know, are, are, I guess to kind of expand on this, are you seeing that, you know, clients are now renegotiating leases completely um, or having a different need for those options or different types of options? Assuming that your space is changing, right, then your options are almost worthless. Uh, again, unless you're in a, you, you have some kind of really advantageous, advantageous terms, or you have some latitude within the options to, to step down or increase space or reconfigure, uh, if the, the idea that six months or 12 months in advance, especially if it's less than 12 months, that you are going to be able to negotiate uh, and relocate any type of major location is going to be very difficult. And we, we read and hear about, have talked to clients about people who are looking at consolidating rooftops, creating shared spaces, doing uh, eliminating certain locations. Uh, in those cases, your options don't do you a lot of good. And, and the best advice that we can give to the clients is start sooner. Don't manage to expirations, right? You, anything that's expiring this year is, is a red flag and you have to get on that right away to know where you are. But you really should be 18 months or two years out in your planning cycle so that you can know that you have the ability, if you have to pick up and leave, that you have those options and you can't get you know held against the wall in a negotiation. Gotcha. And then Kristen, perhaps a uh, you know, kind of an accounting viewpoint of that, you know, those options often are ones that are kind of considered perhaps as part of the likely term. Are you seeing any kind of um, some trends there, some changes um, in terms of that process? I think Kristen's on mute. Sorry. Um I, you know, when Lou was walking through the different situations and, you know, all of those complications that 
are encountered in a lease. While they're complicated from a negotiation perspective, they all have accounting consequences. So if we're going to abandon space, we have to think about the accounting for that. If we're going to, you know, we know we're going to extend options that impacts the accounting. So while all of this has, you know, business implications, there's accounting consequences that have to be considered and they can often be fairly complex. I see. And Brad, anything to add on the, on the option front? Just that, just that there's a lot more out there and they're being built in a more complex way um, to build in that flexibility. Uh, and right now, given the current market, a lot of owners are, are giving that as a concession in exchange for keeping rent around market rate. So mm -hmm. I expect that to continue probably not that much longer, maybe another six to 12 months. Um, but we are seeing it pretty, pretty heavily. I see. And uh, I know you mentioned a couple key lease provisions, things like force majeure, which in my kind of research, it, it's kind of varied by municipality in terms of, you know, if tenants have actually gotten relief as a result of that. I think different states have, have ruled on this in different ways. As an example, you mentioned sanitation. W what are you seeing from a perspective of lease language, Brett, in terms of, you know, where, where tenants are going with this or, or where landlords are going? Yeah, it's it's all over the board, and it certainly varies municipality, state, et cetera, different types of space. I think the one thing that we are consistently seeing is a much heavier reliance on sanitation and maintenance within these leases. Um, the level of service, what, uh, what sort of TI is going to go into this, what sort of new technologies are going to go into the sanitation and maintenance of space has become a very hot topic as it comes to leases because the technology is catching up so quickly compared to how quickly the uh, you know, COVID came out. Um, you're seeing brand new technologies that clients are expecting to have in their space as sort of table stakes. So there's a lot of language there. Obviously, you know, there's going to be articles written about force measure and the effect of that from last last year, you know, well into the future. And then, again, the complication of all these different options, you know, it, we're, we're just seeing more complexity in a lot of this language. Lou, would you would you echo those thoughts? Any? any yeah, I, I would I would agree uh, with Brett. The uh, force majeure really in most leases is a, is a landlord relief from delivery. Very, very few leases prior to the pandemic did you see a force majeure as a relief for the tenant not to pay rent. Uh, and, and I think that uh, when it happened, everyone was scrambling, looking for any way when you have a, a vacant office building to stop paying rent. But, but the reality is, to, to Brett's point, it's, it's part of the entire negotiation. From rate, from rate to term uh, to the other flexibility options that a tenant may, or an occupier may want, the, the question of who bears risk, maybe people start to insure over it, uh, which would be a way to, to share the risk. But, uh, but I'm not sure that there's any common area of agreement as to if something like this happens again, uh, should the landlords absorb all that or should the tenants? And, and Lou, I guess kind of building on that, you know, I think it's it's always been um, probably more commonly a bit of an adversarial relationship between landlords and tenants. And, you know, they're negotiating against each other, trying to kind of land in the best place. I know in the specifics with many of the major landlords, you know, there's a lot of debt service 
And obviously, you know, revenue down is is a dramatic event for them. Are we seeing anything kind of change in terms of the relationship between tenants and landlords um, that's kind of trans, transpired? Our experience is that it really falls into two camps. <laughs> they are uh, the larger, uh, a lot of the larger and on the smaller end, smaller landlords um, were have been pretty accommodating uh, and willing to work with the tenants in, in an open-handed way. Uh, let's try and figure out a win-win, uh, which was where a lot of negotiations were going prior to COVID. Uh, I think based on pressure uh, of other things going on, we've also seen a number of landlords just take a hard line, particularly with the higher credit tenants, right? They knew they were going to take their hit with the with the smaller businesses, lower credit, unrated credit, or the kind of operations that had no revenue and were going to go out of business, but they took a much stronger line with the larger tenants and clients who they knew could pay, and they they worked with them or they again tried to come up with some short term accommodations, but for the most part they drove pretty hard bargain on the rents due you need to pay it. And, uh, and, and so I think going forward, it's going to depend on vacancy. It's going to depend on where the, what market you're in, the type of space, all the variables that Brett alluded to, I think are going to come into play. But there's also the personality of the people who are making the deals, which has put a little bit more personality into it. If someone's a hard line person, they don't seem to be softening. Yeah, and I, I think, um, Lou, at least from my discussion with, you know, both the smaller and larger organizations, you know, it seems that uh, those larger organizations kind of have always kind of expected um, kind of getting treated to a different, um, you know, kind of from a different set of expectations than some of the smaller tenants, as you spoke to. Um, I think a little bit, I think even some of these larger companies have been surprised by the landlord kind of digging in on some of the financial terms, as an example, you know, Brad, are you are you kind of seeing the same that uh, that that Lou has spoken to here? That there's kind of less, um, you know, it, it's not as kind of cut and dried as as it was in the past. Yeah, I think um, I think the winds are changing a little bit. So even like I looked at my LinkedIn feed this morning, I think the first five articles were, you know, Apple coming back three days a week and this company coming back two days a week and and. Whereas for the last year, landlords were really obviously being conciliatory and trying to keep good tenants because they, they obviously needed the cash flow. I actually think a lot of the occupiers that are coming back now has sort of changed the demand curve relatively quickly. And landlords are still digging in against good credit tenants because the demand is there to get their people back to the office, even if it's not 100%, even if there's still a work from home component, which I think every company is going to have. Um, so for the last 12 months, I would have told you, yeah, you know, landlords are sort of running for the hills and trying to protect their good tenants. But it's amazing just how quickly it's changing, even in a matter of weeks, as to how quickly landlords seem to be a little bit back in the driver's seat. Um, and, and the war for talent coming back in full fold with space and amenities being a key component to that. Yeah, and I, I think kind of building on that, Brett, you know, and you kind of are, are already kind of getting to kind of the next question I was going to ask, which is really around kind of who's in the driver's seat. You know, Lou, what, what are you seeing relative to, are, are we seeing kind of a shift of 
of balance here? Do we think some of these things now with um, the flexibility that tenants are wanting in, in turn, the landlords can kind of use that to their advantage? Um, is it, you know, what are you seeing in this regard? I think it'll vary by landlord and it'll vary uh, in, in the market and the type of space, uh, particularly if the reworking of space is required, then somebody needs to come up with the capital. And if, a, if an occupier company is trying to do this in 50 locations, uh, then they are going to look to the landlords, the better healed landlords who have the ability to finance the improvements in exchange for term and credit uh, to do that. So I think the, the, if there is a tide shifting or driver's seat, I think the better healed larger landlords, uh, the REITs, the folks that own uh, and have capital available to make deals uh, are going to be in a better position than smaller independent landlords. Uh, and, and I think that from a landlord-tenant standpoint, it's going to depend on market, right? If I'm in a market where there's only one good choice or two good choices, then I don't have a lot of leverage. But if I'm in a market where there's been some vacancy, some sublease space has increased, or other things that I can work with, then the tenant has a little bit more leverage, assuming that they're going to have to, you know, relocate or move. Understood. And, and Brad, I mean, from a kind of a, a localization, regionalization, country base, you know, are, are you seeing something similar too? I know there's organizations that are kind of pulling out of, you know, high rent areas, moving into secondary mm -hmm. markets. We have, um, you know, expansion as we talked about, kind of overseas. You know, is, is this something that there is some specific uh, trend towards where the tenant's position, where the landlord's position, who's in the driver's seat, or is it kind of really vary based on even the, the local markets? Yeah, you're seeing a lot of variation. Uh, what I will tell you is that prior to COVID, um, especially outside of the United States, landlords were really in the driver's seat. Um, they held almost all control, very little audit rights, et cetera. We are seeing a little bit more traction in, in non-US markets where, where tenants are getting a little bit more traction in terms of their space and their needs, and especially good credit tenants, uh, because obviously there were so many that went under during COVID. But no, it's, it's really varying by market. It's varying by company and organization. What I will say is that the war for talent has not changed. It is still all about where can I get the best people into my organization? And there's a lot more flexibility now that companies are able to provide their employees. So your address, you know, your current home address doesn't matter nearly as much as it, as it might have used to. Uh, your talent is really what's going what's gonna to differentiate and shine through. So we're really seeing it vary all over the place. Sounds good. And I think that's something we're experiencing, you know, kind of in the suite of our uh, products and our customers with where they're getting space. And to your point, you know, you can, the, more of the work for a home provides some flexibility to have, you know, less offices in kind of those major kind of high rent areas. So let's go ahead and, and transition a bit into our kind of next topic, which is really around focusing around some of the accounting implications. You know, I, I feel like the public companies were just starting to settle in after adopting 842 and IFRS 16, and the private companies were kind of just getting underway with the process. And then bam, the pandemic hits. Um, and the accounting and finance organizations are kind of disrupted, you know, are disrupted to a degree. 
And I remember, you know, vividly a lot of the discussions I had with our customers that their kind of number one focus was on payment of rent or partial payment of rent. And basically, you know, said things to the effect of, we'll deal with the accounting later just because, you know, the cash flow and and other short-term priorities, you know, were what was important to them. Um, so clearly, I think, uh, Kristen, as you, as you mentioned early on, you know, some of the accounting impacts have kind of already passed now that we're a year plus into this. But are there any kind of big ticket items that, um, you know, organizations are kind of going through from an accounting perspective now? I mean, one of the things we saw, which was kind of a, you know, a bit of an unusual kind of COVID concession was they would defer rent payments, but then they would tack on, you know, an 8%, you know, uptick um, further on down line in the cash flow stream. So have to think about the accounting for that. And that's going to impact you for a long time. So is that really free rent? Is it really a financing of rent? How do you treat that? Um, we've had a lot of, you know, a lot of companies that got, you know, a couple of months of free rent and they tacked it on at the end. So how does that affect the cash flows? So right. while they were short-term impacts, there was longer-term kind of accounting implications that will kind of take them through the end of their lease terms. Right. And, you know, I think those are things people are kind of sorting out, settling in, in terms of, you know, is there a, is it a modification event? Is it same amount of rent over the same period of time or a different period of time? And obviously all the, the gyrations and nuances to the accounting of that, but, you know, what's kind right. of happening today? Are we seeing anything in terms of, you know, items like, you know, leases becoming impaired being more common or, um, inclusion or exclusion of some of these uh, likely renewal, you know, what the, constitutes the, the likely term? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. We've started to see a lot more uptick in clients reaching out to us to talk about impairment because leases have never been on the balance sheet, so they've never been part of any accounting impairment model. So now um, we need to look at that. And it's not only, I mean, the lease accounting standard, not to get into all the nitty gritty, defines, you know, individual lease components. So you might be leasing a building, maybe it's six floors, and you know what? You decide you only need four floors. So do you have impairment on those remaining two floors? And how do you define that unit of account? And how do you do your cash flow testing to determine the impairment? And do you need to factor in potential sublease income? So all of those issues related to impairment adds a lot of complexity. So we have a lot of clients that are really thinking about impairments. And then the, you know, the reasonably starting to renew options or exercise to early terminations. So, you know, we need to, you know, adoption gave us some carryover provisions that a lot of clients took where they didn't really reevaluate their lease term. But now with changes in facts and circumstances, if you are aware that you're going to exercise an early termination, you need to take into the the into account the effects of that when you're thinking through the accounting. So Understood. there continues to be a lot of accounting complexity as we navigate these day two accounting challenges. Yeah, and I, I you know, if we would have rewound two years ago, I would have thought, you know, what could be more complicated than just implementing and sustaining 842 <laughs> and IFRS? And, you know, here we are. Um, Lou, are, are you Surprise. kind of seeing the same thing from a perspective of, 
you know, the level of kind of accounting complexity is is grown substantially. It, it, it has. And it, it, it is the interesting thing with Kristen's comments is, and, 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 and not to reflect on, on Tango or any other systems, but the systems that were built for the lease admin and lease accounting were kind of built from a ground up standpoint. They weren't always designed for ease of use when you have to go back and make adjustments or deal with impairment. So there's a technical aspect. This goes to Brett's point about why folks are doing some outsourcing. But one of the other accounting impacts or P&L impacts uh, that, that we've seen is that a lot of companies over the last three, four, five years invested huge amounts of money in FF&E and tenant improvements to design the new workspace of the future with workbenches, with people sitting across from each other and next to each other and, 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 and only 120 square feet per person. Uh, and now if they go and tear that out and reposition the space, there's probably some write-off of FF&E or other things that need to get reclassified. Uh, so everything that we've talked about, and I think this is what Kristen was reinforcing, has some type of impact on accounting, which is, if nothing else, it's a complex series of decisions and work to get it to foot. And then it also is the impact of whether it includes any kind of P&L impact or balance sheet impact or impairment. So it, it, it is definitely a complex time with all these moving pieces. And then, you know, I think organizations historically, at least kind of going back a decade, would have really kind of treated lease administration and lease kind of financial management, lease accounting kind of separately in many organizations. So, you know, there was kind of a group that would be abstracting leases, managing the terms, perhaps paying rent, um, and then everything kind of downstream from an accounting perspective um, would be done by the accounting team. I think that really resonated even further in that direction when FASB uh, in IFRS was introduced because it just became that much more complicated. But in the same respect, it did cause those two teams to kind of work more hand in hand because, you know, one change from one group had an impact to the other group. Um, you know, Brett, from a perspective of like centralization versus um, decentralization, you know, is, is there anything that you've seen kind of trend with accounting versus uh, administration? Yeah, I would say that there's less centralization across the board, uh, more stakeholders. You're seeing geographic stakeholders. You're seeing accounting leads. You are seeing uh, real estate leads controllership, et cetera. Um, there's, just, there's just more stakeholders in almost every one of our clients. We are so rarely in a position where there's like one or two stakeholders. It's normally starting with six and going all the way up to 20. Um, and, and that's okay. That's sort of the complexity of, of the business nature today, given how many stakeholders are relying on the real estate data. Uh, but it's cer certainly a change as, as we are thinking about how we implement these solutions for our clients. Yeah, understood. And Lou, I, I think, are you seeing the same kind of trend that there's kind of decentralization is, is not uncommon at um, this point? Definitely. You were talking earlier about the international component. Uh, a, a lot of U.S.-based US corporations, the U.S. folks really didn't know anybody 
internationally where they didn't deal with them. And they, country by country, they have different business groups. Uh, they have different people. The decisions on leasing, whether it was real estate or assets, were made a lot of times at an operational level and everything just rolled up to a, a rent expense in, in the GL. So uh, I think the complexity now, as real estate people, we never realized how much time accountants spent on month-end closes doing adjusting entries, right? And now when, when these systems are pushing out uh, the journal entries for a month-end close and they don't sync up because they haven't yet integrated with the ERP or, or for other reasons, there is this flurry of activity to get changes in before the month end close or the quarter end close to make sure that things sync up. And, and I think that is what's driving the outsourcing that Brett talks about is that there's gonna be a fatigue uh, at some point uh, with this with folks just don't have enough manpower to get all this caught up. So it sounds like more work, shorter period of time, which then kind of doesn't bode well for having these things kind of managed within their teams. You know, I think the the system replacements, I think from our, you know, from our experience, we've seen a, a, an extraordinary kind of uptick in system replacements. Obviously, some of those were driven specifically based out of the FASB standards. But I think, you know, shockingly, I don't think we've seen that trend kind of uh, subside at all. And I think, Kristen, what are, you, what are you seeing from a perspective of, you know, lease accounting solutions where companies would go in, maybe focus just on that? Are you seeing that? expanding into some of the administration side or, you know, what are you seeing from a perspective of um, the system replacements or our adoptions? Yeah, we're definitely seeing companies, especially in the public space, revisiting system selection. You know, maybe they had a real estate um, administration system and they said, oh yeah, we can do the 842 accounting. You just have to flip the switch and, you know, add in that, that unit. And then when that happened and it, it, it hasn't really worked out so well. So they're saying, I didn't think I needed a system or I thought I, the system I had was fine, but now they're kind of re revisiting and reevaluating that and looking to get more of some of these broader business benefits out of that system and having better data, better analytics to manage those portfolios. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, I, as I've always said it, you know, Excel's a system, you know, some of this thing, some of this work has been done in organizations and still continues to be done in Excel. And, you know, people kind of rely on that. Obviously, I think you've alluded to the fact as well as Brett and, and Lou that it's getting more complicated. The system requirements and the timing requirements and the integration requirements have all grown. So as a result of that, you know, I think those kind of standalone systems really um, haven't kind of bode well for, you know, a long-term strategy for an organization to kind of mitigate their risk and, and obviously grow over time. Let's, let's shift a bit into um, our, our last topic for, uh, for this session, which is really around the systems themselves and the data. And I think, you know, organizations have kind of always had really strong opinions on what they valued. Um, from a perspective of a lease management perspective. What would they abstract out of leases? What would they capture? What did they need to kind of drive their business objectives? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, 
the reason that companies are managing this information, extracting it out of lease, out of uh, lease files and investing the money is because they see a return on that either to assist with their strategy or other, um, you know, other activities within their business that they need to, you know, provide that data. So uh, Lou, if I could ask you, you know, do you feel that the, you know, has the pandemic kind of increased a need for having kind of more comprehensive systems? And if so, kind of why? We got you on mute, Lou. Sorry, there was thunder in the background earlier. So we're getting a little <laughs> thunderstorm outside. Uh, I'm not sure that the pandemic increased the need. Uh, it definitely increased visibility within the companies. Uh, I do believe that the, the lease accounting was the biggest driver, the compliance with that was the biggest driver to getting companies to recognize they needed to start to gather this. And the discipline that was uh, instilled in collection of the information and change management in order to have to every month comply and, 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 and get everything completed has given a good backbone. What has happened now is that everyone, all the other ancillary groups who want data are starting to lean in to how can I get the system to do this? And so we're getting into a little bit of the boil the ocean uh, uh, issues we ran into uh, three or four years before transition where people designed this macro system. And then at the end, it got very narrow to let's, we just have to get to the finish line. Uh, so I think there is definitely a need. The other piece, the user adoption piece, and for people who are casual users, and Rick, we've had this conversation a lot of times about the ease of getting at the data, the ease of use once it's there. You can't send everything that you need through the IT group or it's get in line for your report or get in line to get this extract. And, and that leads to frustration. So from a system standpoint, the two pieces are one, there's a data collection and validation and maintenance piece. And then there is the access and usability of the data that has to be built. And both of those people are still uh, wrestling with. I don't think there's a clear solution yet. And the systems are evolving and the training's evolving but we've got a ways to go. Yeah, and I, you know, uh, obviously living this kind of day-to-day, -day, I think, you know, that focus on user experience and getting information out of the system, as well as obviously making it efficient um, to manage the operation is definitely something kind of I've seen as well. Um, Brett, from a kind of a lease management solution standpoint, you know, what have you seen? Have you seen, you know, more systems, less systems, more comprehensive needs, what does that look like for uh, for your clients? Yeah, it's interesting. So in a in a area where the systems cover call it ninety to ninety five percent of the same thing, we cover twenty five different systems at Cushman and Wakefield. Um, obviously, Tango Tango a terrific partner for us, but we've we've seen it all over the place, really. Um, I very much agree with Lou. I don't know if it was the pandemic or IFRS, FASB, ASC, but over the last four or five years. 
the demand has skyrocketed for this service and getting the data into a system. Um, we rarely, I'm not saying never, but we rarely come across clients now that still have their leases in desk drawers and Excel tables. Um, the ones that we see there are certainly not, not as sophisticated as we normally come across, but there's just been a huge demand for this. And as the demand has risen, the systems have gotten better. But as the systems have gotten better, we've actually wanted to collect more data because there's more need for it because of the complexity of globalization and, and COVID and everything else that's going on. So it's sort of this little circle that's coming about, which is there's high demand, the systems are improving, and we need to collect more data, which is just leading to more and more strain on the system and, and certainly more strain on the service providers as well that, that we need to keep up. Yeah, and I think to the to the data and and abstraction, I think you know what's unique about lease administration has always been unique about lease administration is kind of abstracting leases, right? Where you get 100 or 200 page documents with all kinds of provisions and companies kind of rationalizing what provisions matter, what don't matter, how to paraphrase things, you know what what they need in detail. You know, Lou, Lou, what have you seen from kind of a pure abstraction standpoint? Are we seeing some shifts here? Are we seeing uh, uh, different approaches relative to how people are getting this in, meaning abstract versus convert from historical systems or any any trends here? I think that there's the, the biggest ch change that we've seen over the last number of years, and, and, and Tango does this well, is, is getting more to structured data. Uh, and there clearly has been a bias more towards financial than legal over the last couple of years. The original lease abstraction was, uh, you know, attorneys, paralegals, or someone reading the lease contract, creating clause summaries in text and putting them somewhere in a document so that uh, somebody didn't have to read the entire lease. Uh, now, uh, almost 80% of the focus is on the financial terms and trying to drive through clause questions or smart clauses or things in the systems, structured data that you can report on without having to go read the clauses. Uh, and, and so the, the biggest trend that we've seen in the data is people moving away, trying to find uh, ways to do that. And that's one of the challenges. Everyone has talked about AI automated abstraction, but that initial abstraction is no longer the biggest hurdle. And investing a lot with the AI, with languages, with the quality of the OCR and those type of things, we still haven't seen great systems that can take a four-page rent clause and put it into a, a structured payment table in, in software. Uh, so there is always going to be a manual component to that. But I think I'm understanding what you need on the output is as important in designing what you abstract as just gathering the legal clauses and the, the historical work. Yeah, and I, I think, um, Brett, what I've seen is, you know, the clients that kind of spend the right time to figure out what they need before they start, um, you know, in the end, those are important decisions or costly ones if they don't and have to kind of go back and crack open files and kind of go through it again. You know, do, do we see any kind of, are you have you seen any changes here in terms of what's being abstracted and the approach to abstraction um, that you could share? 
Yeah, in terms of what's being abstracted, we've seen a, a gradual rise in the amount of data points that we have across all of our leases. So a couple of years ago, we averaged 100 data points. Now we're averaging closer to 150 data points on an average lease. So significantly more data. I very much agree with what Lou said on, on the machine learning and the AI, which is there's been a lot of money invested in that technology that has not yet gotten to the accuracy level to get to that single point of truth. And that's obviously the most important is having the reliable data. Um, there's really a question for me, which is over the next five years, 10 years, as you're looking at the future landscape of abstraction, is, does machine learning actually play a role or do, are we potentially leasing in a different way? So residential leases are all done now electronically through DocuSign and shared databases. Is there a way that commercial leases start following that same path? Whereas as opposed to actually abstracting data out of a 200 page lease, as you are going through the leasing process, it might already be streamlined, digitized and put into the right system. So there might be a shorter useful life on machine learning and AI in this specific space than we might've thought a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's a that's a really um, interesting point, Brett. I think that's something we continue to monitor relative to, you know, the age old question of kind of how to get the information into the system and how to make the best use of it. But with that, I think we're we're kind of at the at the end here of both um, our topics and um, and all the great feedback that you all shared. So I really appreciate that. Thank you in participating in this session. Thanks for listening to this session from Tango's Workplace 2.0 Summit. For more sessions from the summit, check out the show notes for details.